What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hey guys, Kelly Evans here. I want to give you a heads up about another CNBC podcast, Cult Squawk Pod. If you enjoy the exchange, you'll definitely enjoy Squawk Pod too. It's some of the best of what you can expect from the team here at CNBC, including news making interviews, analysis, and debate. This week, my friend Becky Quick interviews the Oracle of Omaha himself, Warren Buffett. And it's all part of a must hear special week of episodes on the podcast. I'm sharing with you today's episode now, but be sure to subscribe to Squawk Pod today. Yep, here's Warren, ready to go, on time. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, Warren Buffett sits down with Becky Quick. How are you? Good, good, doing fine. The 89-year-old CEO and chairman of Berkshire Hathaway has written his annual letter to shareholders. It's read by millions, but written for two. I've always had the image that I am talking to my sisters. I have two sisters, and I pretend they've been away for a year, and I'm reporting to them on their investment. So it's Dear Doris and Bertie. After 55 of those letters, Warren Buffett is still as hungry for stocks today as he ever was. First day I bought stocks was March 12, 1942. There have been seven Republicans after that and seven Democrats. I bought stocks under every one of them. This is a special, super-sized podcast with the Oracle of Omaha on thoughtful investing. You get more trouble with a good idea than a bad idea because the good idea works. American politics. You're not a card-carrying Democrat. That's true. You are a card-carrying capitalist. You Absolutely. actually have one of those in your wallet. Yeah. And only on Squawk Pod, Warren Buffett's own podcast feed. I didn't really think I was going to listen to all 30 minutes, but, but it was really good. <laughs> I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Monday, February 24th, 2020. Squawk Pod with Warren Buffett begins right now. Hi, this is Becky Quick, and today I'm live in Omaha, Nebraska, with a very special edition of Squawk Pod. We've been speaking with Warren Buffett, the chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. This is what we call our Ask Warren show, and believe it or not, this is something we've done for now 13 years running. We meet with him on the Monday after he releases his shareholders' letter, his annual shareholders' letter, and we take questions from viewers. Uh, We've gotten thousands and thousands of questions from viewers over the years, and we've tried to ask them as many as we possibly can. Nothing's off-limits for this conversation. We talk about everything from interest rates to the Berkshire Hathaway companies to the investments in companies like Apple. This time was a little unusual, though. We were starting looking at the market down 800-plus points in the morning before the market opened, so these are the things that we got to bounce off with him right off the top. We're a net buyer of stocks over time. And uh, just like being a net buyer of food, I expect to buy food the rest of my life. And I hope that food goes down in price tomorrow. So when stocks are down, uh, you know, uh, we're going to we're going to be buying on balance. And, and who wouldn't rather buy, uh, you know, a lower price than a higher price? People are really strange on that. I mean, they because uh, most people, most most of your listeners are savers and that means they'll be net buyers, and they should want the stock market to go down. They should want to buy at a lower price. And, but, uh, but 
they got that feeling that they just feel better when stocks are going up. I want to talk about the letter. Uh, obviously, one of the things that you touch on in the level uh, on the letter is when people should be buying stocks. The very first day I bought stocks was March 12th, 1941, 40, 40, uh, 42. And uh, the stocks were down about 2% that day, as it turned out. Unfortunately, I bought in the morning. So when I came home in the evening and my dad told me the execution price, it was down 2%. But, uh, uh, if you're buying a business... Uh, and, and that's what stocks are, businesses. In fact, people would be better off if they say, I bought a business today, not a stock today, because that gives you a, a different perspective on it. Then presumably you buy a farm, if you buy an apartment house, if you buy a business, you're going to own it for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And the real question is, is has the 10-year or 20-year outlook for, for American businesses changed in the last 24 hours or 48 hours, and we're going to, you'll notice many of the businesses we own, partially own, American Express, we've owned it for 20 years, Coca-Cola, we've owned it for 40 years. Uh, those are businesses, and uh, you don't buy or sell your business based on on, uh, on today's headlines, and uh, if it gives you a chance to buy something that you like, and you can buy it even cheaper, then it's your good luck, basically. Does that mean Berkshire will be buying stocks today? It, it's it, well, we certainly won't be selling, and and yeah, we may we could easily be buying something. Sure. In the letter this year, you highlighted a book that was written by Edgar Lawrence Smith back in 1924, and you said until he came along, nobody really realized the compound interest effect of buying stocks—not just buying businesses, but buying stocks themselves. Yeah. Edgar Lawrence Smith changed the world with that book, and the people have forgotten all about it now. Although in the 1920s, it, would, it became more and more gospel as the boom went on. But Edgar Lawrence Smith set out to write a book on bonds versus stocks. And he said if he went in with the idea that bonds would be a better investment in times of deflation and stocks would be a better uh, investment in times of inflation. And the first line of his book was to say that he'd been wrong. But he had enough sense to look at his evidence. I think Darwin said if you found evidence that was contrary to what you already believed, write it down in 30 minutes or your, your mind will just block it out. I mean, people have a great resistance to new evidence. And he said if a stock yields 4% and a bond yields 4%, which was what he was talking about then, the stock was going to outperform the bonds because there were retained earnings that were building beyond that yield. And that's, that had been true for a long, long time, but nobody paid any attention to it. Uh, we don't get rich on our dividends that we receive, although we're happy to receive them. We get rich on, on, on the fact that the retained earnings are used to build new earning power, repurchase uh, shares, which increases your ownership in the company. And, and, uh, uh, and, and Berkshire has retained earnings ever since we started. That's the only reason Berkshire's worth a lot more as we retain earnings. That, that, that led... Keynes to actually say that this was an important book. People paid attention to it, but you're right. It added to the frenzy that built up to 1929. Well, that, that is true because you can get, old boss Ben Graham told me very early on, you get more trouble with a good idea than a bad idea because the good idea works. I mean, it's a good idea to buy a home, for example, and then people go crazy. The good idea works and it works and it works. Stocks work out better than bonds most of the time. And after a while, people forget that there were some other limiting conditions. With Edgar Lawrence Smith's 
book, it was that when bonds yield the same as stocks, which was the case then, that stocks are going to outperform because they have this retained earnings. So stocks started going up in the 20s, and all of a sudden they were selling at five or six times the prices as when he bought the book. And the original correct uh, perception on his part had experienced changing conditions, but people just looked they got their confirmation through stock prices, and people, that's what happens in bull markets. People, people start out thinking stocks are cheap, and then they start thinking stocks have gone up. <laughs> and, and a stock can be a good buy or a bad buy. A bond can be a good buy or a bad buy. It depends on price. But that leads us to today. I mean, if his premise was that stocks are always going to be a better, uh, a better investment than bonds, that's kind of what you hear today, which we've been hearing for a while, is, Tina, there is no alternative, right? You have to buy stocks because bond yields are so low, because interest rates are so low. Well, if, if you look at the present situation, we've talked about this before, that you get more for your money in stocks than bonds. That doesn't have to be the case. I mean, uh, uh, but it's usually been the case in, in America, very usually been the case. And, and if you buy a... 30-year bond today with yield 2%, you're paying 50 times earnings for an investment where the earnings can't go up for 30 years. Now, if somebody said, I want to sell you a stock that's at 50 times earnings and the earnings can't go up for 30 years, you'd say, that doesn't sound very good. Stocks are way better than 30-year bonds. I mean, it's, 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 it, that's clear. And, and that's one of the alternatives people have. People really have three basic alternatives. Short-term cash, which is an option of doing something later on. Long-term bonds or, or, or long-term stocks. And stocks are cheaper than bonds. Charlie said recently, Charlie Munger, the vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway, had his daily journal meeting just a couple of weeks ago. And at that meeting, he said that there's a lot of wretched excess out there and that there's a lot of trouble coming as a result. Do you agree with that? There's always trouble coming. Yeah, there was trouble coming in 1942 when I bought that first stock, all kinds of trouble. Philippines were going to fall pretty soon. I'm never, uh, there was all kinds of trouble in 1949. There was trouble, uh, certainly trouble in 2008 when I wrote an article for the New York Times. I said trouble is coming, but I said buy stocks. <laughs> <laughs> would you repeat that this time? If trouble's coming, would you still say buy stocks right now? I would say buy stocks if you get enough for your money. And, you know, we buy a few stocks, but... We don't look at, we're, we're not buying the stock market. We're saying, I am buying, let's say American Express, we own American Express. Um, there's 815 million shares out and sells it this morning at 126 or something like that. So it's selling for roughly $100 billion. Now the real question is whether the company's worth more or less than $100 billion. It isn't what the stock is going to do tomorrow or next week or next month. You said uh, just a few minutes ago, right now Berkshire Hathaway is a net buyer of stocks. You are... In a net buying position? We've been a net buyer of stocks, or I've been, actually been a personal net buyer of stocks ever since I was 11, every year. And, and uh, uh, There's been 15 American presidents in my lifetime, more than a third. I've lived under a third of the life. I didn't buy stocks under Hoover. I was only about six months old then. But, but there have been seven Republicans after that and seven Democrats. I bought stocks under every one of them. Now, I haven't bought stocks every day. There have been a few times I've thought stocks were were really quite high, uh, and I've even written an article once or twice, but that's very seldom. But you wrapped up your partnership at one point, I wrapped too. up my partnership once. Because, because you thought it was too expensive? Yeah. Okay. But this is not a time like that? Uh, we own $240 billion worth of stocks. Now, we look at that as $240 billion worth of businesses uh, that we own parts of, but uh, I love owning those businesses.
You've also got more than $125 billion in cash sitting around. Yeah, well, that's, we'd like to buy more businesses. <laughs> there are a lot of people who look at the market and they say, look, I want to buy, but I don't want to buy when the market's sitting at new highs, when it's been hitting new records every day. Maybe there's more of a decline to come because the effect of the coronavirus is going to be an impact on the global economy. IMF said that over the weekend. You are going to see weakness as not only China, but other countries try and address this. You're right. It may not change things over the five or 10 year span of things. But if I think that I can buy something for potentially 10 percent cheaper, maybe more than that, if I wait a week or a month, maybe that's what I'm sitting around. Well, if you think that, then you've got to you're going to get fabulously rich if you're right. (laughs) All you have to do is just keep buying at 10 day intervals and keep (laughs) taking your 10 day prediction. If I knew what the market was going to do, obviously, but you, you don't, uh, I, I don't think anybody knows what the market's going to do. I think you know, do know whether you're making an intelligent pers- purchase at a given price. Everybody, when they buy a stock, if you're going to buy, say, General Motors, that has a billion, 400 million shares out, you should be able to take a yellow pad like you have there and on one page say, let's say it's selling for 30, it isn't selling that low, but that'd be 42 billion. You should say, I am buying the General Motors company for $42 billion because, and you should get it on a piece of paper. And then if you want to have a separate piece of paper, it says, I think I know what the stock market is going to do, so I know whether it will be higher or lower in it. But you don't. Uh, you don't have that. The real, no, but the real if, if I worry that the economy is going to slow down, not just for the quarter, but for the year, that would impact how many cars I think they may be able to sell or even produce. Uh, I'll, I'll guarantee you cars are going to slow down someday. <laughs> they, uh, in... in in 1932, General Motors had 19,000 dealers. That's more than all the auto dealers in the United States today. There were only 125 million people then, but they had 19,000 dealers. They produced uh, or sold, and there was one month, I think, when they sold less than a tenth of a car, right at a tenth of a car per dealer. That was a terrific time to buy General Motors. <laughs> and, uh, and forget about the market. If you can predict the market... You don't need to read balance sheets. You don't need, you don't need, to, read, you don't need to read anything. You, you certainly can't predict the market by reading the daily newspaper. That is for sure. And you really can't, you certainly can't predict the market by listening to me. Uh, but you're buying businesses. And if you had planned to buy a local service station yesterday and it was closing today, I don't think you'd tear your hair out or anything like that. You'd have already looked at where it was located and the contract that it had with the suppliers and made a decision on competition uh, people, because they can make decisions every second in stocks, whereas they can't with farms, they think an investment in stocks is different than an investment in a business or an investment in a farm or investment in an apartment house. Uh, but it isn't. If, if you get your money's worth in terms of future earning power over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, you're going to have made a good investment. And you can't pick them from day to day. If you can do that, you can... Well, I haven't met anybody yet that... that knows how to do it. People have a lot of questions about the economy. They're wondering what's happening right now, particularly with the coronavirus out there. Um, You have a lot of economic data at your fingertips because not only are the many businesses that Berkshire owns, but the businesses you own pieces in. Um, What are you seeing right now around the globe? Well, it it affects various businesses. uh, I would would say that I received commentary. I get get some commentary monthly with uh, from from almost all of the companies, and, and a good many of them had some comment about how it was affecting them, and however it was affecting them at, at that time, I'm sure it's accentuated. But they've been affected by, they were affected by tariffs, they're affected by taxes, they're affected by 
the most thing is they're affected by competitors and supply and demand over time. And I don't have the faintest idea what our businesses will be doing six months from now or 12 months from now. I do think that not only our businesses, but American business generally, will be doing fabulously better 30 years from now or 20 years from now. And the, the long term is very, in my view, is very easy to predict in a general way, but an important way. I don't think there's any way to predict what the stock market will do 10 minutes from now, 10 days from now, or 10 months from now. So I work on what I think I've, I'm able to do. And as desirable as it might be to know what was going to happen 10 minutes from now, I'm just, that's just not something I'll ever be able to master. So fortunately, I can come to a pretty firm conclusion that 20 or 30 years from now, America's business and probably over the world will be far better than it is now. What are the momentary implications that you've seen from coronavirus? What's an example of a business? That's well, an example, uh, for example, we have maybe a thousand Dairy Queen uh, franchises in, 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 in uh, China here. And they're just treat only. So they're, they're the old, uh, older type, not with food. But a, a great number of them were closed. But the ones that were open weren't doing any business to speak of. And, and Apple is, I mean, our much bigger holding is Apple. We own five. 0.6% of Apple, and, and, and uh, the company came out and said that it's affecting not only its stores, but all kinds of things, supply chain. And I find that certain of our companies have got supply chain arrangements that are being affected by this that I didn't even know had those. Like what? Well, I got one uh, from John's Manville the other day, for example. You wouldn't normally think of them as having a big supply chain, but Shaw Carpets or you name it. I'll guarantee you that a very significant percentage of our business is one layer affected by, but they're being affected by a lot of other things too. And the real question is, is where are those businesses going to be in five or 10 years? They'll have ups and downs. Our, our candy business is a wonderful business, but it loses money seven months out of the year. But the nice thing is Christmas comes every year. <laughs> it's warm weather. We're approaching spring in a lot of parts of the country or a lot of parts of the planet. That may be good news. We just don't know if this time around, if this is one of those viruses that that does die off in warmer weather. Wait and see and kind of hope. Yeah, Warm actually, um, uh, I think this, from what I've heard from people that know a lot more about viruses than I do, that that, that uh, unfortunately this will make it for the summer. And, and and in terms of having a vaccine, it's, you know, a long ways off. So... Uh, you've got, uh, you know, it is scary stuff. Uh, I don't think it should affect what you do in stocks, but uh, but it, in, in terms of in terms of the human race, it's scary stuff when you have a pandemic. Yeah, I, I guess this one's particularly frightening because it's new. Uh, so there's no natural immunity that's built up in any of the populations, and you wonder what happens, particularly in areas where there's not the same healthcare structure that we have in America or in some of the developed nations. I, I guess that's a big part of the question too. Yeah. And it's it's uh, well, I think about it in terms of our annual meeting. I mean, it, which is May, May 2nd. I mean, it it, uh, it could very well affect by that time. It could affect. Uh, We've got questions from viewers asking just that. Will the annual meeting be any different this year, particularly because you have a large uh, Chinese contingency of shareholders? Who yeah, I don't think that. Yeah. And that certainly will be affected. And and, uh, and incidentally, I mean, flu is particularly tough on old people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to have two guys on the stage whose combined age is 185. So, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll uh, we won't be looking for people that are showing any signs of contagion. <laughs> but that's one of the problems with this: is that it does have a long 
gestation period. That, that, right. that, and, and it's highly transmissible. And again, you did talk about it earlier. It's something that you see in the results of the businesses, it's even true. some of your own fully owned sure. businesses that you didn't anticipate. Well, and we own airlines, for example. Uh, no, it, it affects businesses. Now, actually, my dad used to tell me a story. He was 14 in 1918, and he, he, he told me what went on in Omaha you know, during the big Spanish flu epidemic. I mean, it, it was it was something in those days, and uh, and pandemics will occur in the in the future. Now, what they hope to get is is a universal flu vaccine, but that's a long way off. It isn't impossible. I mean, I asked my my own science advisor is Bill Gates, so I talked to him. I call him. I've talked to him the last few days about uh, about it, and uh, he's bullish on the long-term outlook for a, a, a universal uh, 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 prevention of it, but but uh, he says it's not going to come, you know, for, it's not going to be here in 10 years. What are, what are Bill's concerns as somebody who spends a lot of time traveling around the globe, as somebody who is trying to help medicine in some of the less developed parts of the world? Yeah, the Gates Foundation is is very active in trying to be helpful on this. And, and Bill says the CDC is the best in the world. And, and uh, I mean, we've got terrific resources in this country, but a pandemic is a pandemic. And, and uh, uh, there's just no evaluating. It. But I have heard that the summer is not likely to cause the end of this. Do you know why? But I don't know, and, and you know, you shouldn't be asking. I, I shouldn't be offering my opinion on that because I, I, I pass along things I hear from people I think are smart. But, but I'm actually asking for Bill's opinion, not yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, uh, well, I shouldn't, and I shouldn't really quote him, but I do. I, he's the guy I ask, I, and I did talk to him just a few days ago, and uh, uh, he loves to talk science, and he, he can make it so I can understand it, which is uh, quite a trick. Uh, um, you know, at, at the Gates Foundation, they're taking it very seriously. I'll put it that way. Is money going from the Gates Foundation to try and I'm, find a I'm, vaccine? I'm sure we are expending human and financial resources. When you look at the economy and how things were kind of chugging along, let's say beginning of this year, yeah. when, when first things things first picked up, how would you gauge the U.S. economy at that? Well, point? it's it's strong, but a little softer than it was six months ago. But that's over a broad range of business. You look at car loadings, rail car loadings. That, that's moving goods around. And there again, that was affected by the tariffs, too, because people front-ended purchases, all kinds of things, always a lot of variables. But uh, business is down. And, and, uh, but it's down from a very good level. Uh, so I would say that looking at our 70 businesses, and that actually, they represent hundreds uh, in addition, uh, they're a little softer. Uh, on the other hand, I was out with the fellows from the Nebraska Furniture Mart just Saturday night, and, and their business was up quite a bit in February, but that's because weather was good. <laughs> so you have a lot of variables that hit. Why, why do you think business was down, let's say, the last six months? Is, is it a decline in confidence, or is it coming off of levels where there was unusual activity ahead of that? Well, it isn't really down. It's just it, it leveled off and a little softer maybe now. But, well, tariffs the, the tariff situation was a big question mark for all kinds of companies, and, and still is to some degree. But that that was front and center for a while. Uh, uh, now coronavirus is front and center. Something else will be front and center six months from now, and a year from now, and two years from now. The real question is is where your where are these businesses going to be five and ten and twenty years from now? Some of them will do sensationally, some of them will disappear, and 
overall, I think America will do very well. You know, it has since 1776. But you still watch things like rail car loading oh, yeah. very closely. I watch everything. <laughs> but I don't do it to make in specific investment decisions. It, uh, uh, but I, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I, I want to know what's going on. But I also don't think that I can make money by predicting what's going to go on next week or next month. I do think I can make money by predicting what's going to happen in 10 years. All right. Well, tell us more about what's going on, just since you like knowing about those things. <laughs> well, as I say, you know, the, the uh, certain businesses depend on weather to quite an extent in retail, for example, in given months. Uh, uh, but the big trends you see are going on. I mean, in terms of the movement to, to online commerce and I mean, the, the big stuff uh, keeps moving. Uh, uh, but we've got a big investment in the airline business. And I just heard, you know, even more flights are canceled and all that. But flights are canceled for weather. It so happens in this case, they're going to be canceled for longer because of uh, coronavirus. But if you own airlines for 10 or 20 years, you're going to have some ups and downs in current business. And some of them will be weather related. And they can be all kinds of things. Uh, uh, the real question is, is, you know, how many passengers are they going to be carrying 10 years from now and 15 years from now? And what will margins be? And, and uh, what will the competitive position be? And but I still look at the figures all the time. <laughs> I, I'll admit that. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned the airlines and you own stakes in all the major airlines. But all none as much as Delta. I think you own north of 11 percent of Delta at this point. Well, right at- we are the, our largest position is in Delta. Three of the four positions are mine. One of the positions is one of the other fellows uh, of the four positions. But we own a very roughly ten, close to 10 percent of, of uh, the four largest airlines. There's been a lot of speculation. In fact, some of the questions that came in over this weekend uh, were questions about those airlines, wondering if you would buy any of them outright. Have you considered buying any of those companies outright? It'd be very unlikely we would do that. I'm not saying it's impossible, but uh, it's complicated. Why? Well, for one thing, they're regulated and there's an interplay. Uh, uh, I'll just give you an example, not that we'd be doing, but with Delta... We own 18% of American Express, and American Express is a bank holding company, and bank holding companies have limits as to what they can do, and we're a passive holder of a bank holding company with American Express, but then if we owned an airline that was tied up with them, they'd have lots of arrangements. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of complications because it's a, it's a regulated industry. Anytime you get in a regulated industry, you have more complications in, 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 in transactions. So is it fair to say you like these stocks and you would own more if it, did, if it wasn't complicated? Well... We, if to go beyond 15% in any company, we would have to go in on Hart Scott Rodino. I mean, there's a lot of rules as you increase your ownership. Obviously, almost anything we own, we'd like to own more of. Are you buying more of any of those stakes right now? Apple well, right. Uh, I get pretty close-mouthed when it comes to what we're buying. <laughs> <You> <laughs> All of a sudden, that I feel my jaws lock up. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you just heard was on Squawk Box this morning. But this is Squawk Pod, which means special content just for you, our podcast listeners. And as it turns out, Warren Buffett may be among you. popular. keep getting more downloads every day. <laughs> Terrific. Okay. So, Warren, first of all, let me ask you, do you ever listen to podcasts? I've listened to maybe four or five. Uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a slow method of communication, so it's not really a 
efficient in my case, but usually. But but my friend Carol Loomis has been on a podcast with David Novak, I believe, and Tom Murphy the same way. And so if it's a, if Charlie Munger did a podcast, I'd probably run it five times. Yeah, but but I don't, I'm not a regular listener. But you know how, and you've done it. I've done it, and I, I did it just the other day because I uh, I looked on Google and I saw that one of our managers, a remarkable guy, had done a podcast. And so I went to Iowa Public TV, and, and uh, uh, this guy's name is Adam Wright, and I listened to a 38-minute podcast, and I didn't really think I was going to listen to all 38 minutes, but, but it was really good. Cheese <laughs> will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Warren Buffett defends the size of $500 billion-plus Berkshire Hathaway. Wall Street would love to come along and sell anything that we've got. And his legacy investors. A Class A share of Berkshire is worth more than $300,000. I love the shareholders we have. We'll be right back. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to a special extended episode of Squawk Pod. Becky Quick interviews legendary investor Warren Buffett. And here's a podcast-exclusive clip about Buffett's unorthodox betting strategy. A story that I, you and I have talked about in the past, but it's the story of the non-transitive dice and oh, yeah. what you do with that. Uh-huh. Like, it's, it's something you used when you first met Bill Gates, right? Or at some point, you kind of pulled right, them out. Right, right. What happened? Well... I read about them in the scientific journal, these non-transitive dice, where, where I bet you, I give you a choice of four dice, and you can p- pick one, and then we'll roll against one I pick, and the higher number wins. And whatever you pick, I can beat you, which sounds crazy, because if, if I'm taller than you and, and some basketball player's taller than I am, he's taller than you. That's a transitive series. But these dice are non-transitive, and... So you can go to bars and you can go to restaurants and you can roll for the who pays for the check and you can go through life and never pick up a check if you have these non-transitive dice, which I have. And only two times, three times, three times people figured it out and said, you pick first to me. <laughs> and one was a drunk I met someplace <laughs> and the other two was were Sal Kripke from Omaha became one of the most famous guys in a certain field of language, and Bill Gates. And, and those guys both said, you go first. And at that point, uh, I just went on to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about a Barron's cover story that was just out last week. Uh, the good news on the cover story is they think the Berkshire is worth more than it's selling for right now. Mm-hmm. The bad news is they said they think that's in part because it, there's, it's got a big conglomerate discount, and they think if you weren't running it, that it might get broken up. What, what's your response to that line of logic? Well, conglomerates have had a bad name, and for good reason over the years. I mean, I, I closed my partnership up at the end of the 1960s, and there was a run, a very abusive run in conglomerates where they played with numbers, and they had dirty pooling, as they called it, of accounting. They, 
they wanted to have their stocks up and put out stories to do it so they could issue more stock. They were kind of chain letter arrangements. There, there've been a lot of there've been a lot of bad conglomerates, and probably disproportionately so compared to sort of honest to God single industry businesses over time. Uh, uh, we don't think we're that kind of a conglomerate. <laughs> We've certainly never wanted to issue shares. We've never touted shares. We, you know, and it, it, it's 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 done for business reasons in our case. The interesting thing is, of course, is the American public has been going wild in their enthusiasm for conglomerates in the last few years, if you think about it. I mean, it's been an incredibly popular area, but they call them index funds. Oh. You, buy, you buy 500 <laughs> businesses. Trying to figure out what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, 500 businesses all put together. I mean, that's the ultimate conglomerate, isn't it? I right. mean, I, I've recommended index funds to lots of people, and when they do it, they're buying into 500 businesses. And... Uh, they're going to have 500 businesses a year from now and five years from now, and they think that group of businesses will do very well. And I think our group of businesses will do okay. The difference with an S&P 500 index is it's 500 different companies run by 500 different management teams who are all focused on their business, maybe not having a centralized operation that is loosely running all of those businesses. Well, we've got, our businesses are run by separate people. I mean, I... I uh, we just finished Valentine's Day, and I did not, I did not select what pieces went in the boxes. <laughs> and and uh, it's been probably been 10 years at least since I've been to a C's Candry factory. Now, you know, I get the figures every month, but I, I, don't, have, I don't know how to make chocolate. <laughs> I think of the sort. I don't pick out the new locations. We, we have managers for our businesses that are very much like the managers we have the businesses that we own pieces of, like American Express or Coca-Cola. And uh, there's a couple things we can do. We can determine the dividend policy of our subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can control their capital allocation to some extent. But on, on most capital allocation, whether to buy new equipment or anything like that, they make the decision. The, the BNSF Railroad is going to spend $3.5 billion on I, I don't, I don't approve a single dollar of that in terms of capital expenditures. They, they know what they need to do, or they need to lay track, how many locomotives they need, whatever it may be. So our managers are, I would say, in a sense, they're almost more independent uh, than the managers of the S&P 500 who go around and report to Wall Street week after week. They go to investor relations meeting, and they're always explaining what they're doing and trying to get the approval of the analysts and all that sort of thing. And, and we just tell our managers to do what makes sense. Okay, outside of the idea of them not having to report to individual shareholders or the investment community, what's the advantage of having you there? The capital allocation part of it? Well, we can, yeah, we can move capital within. If you move capital from one stock to another, and you got a gain, particularly, I mean, you pay a tax and, and uh, may pay a dividend tax or if you sell, uh, but there's a, there's a, a lot of taxes incurred in moving from one business to another, either at the corporate level, uh, in some cases, uh, but certainly at the individual level. And uh, we can move capital, well, just take C's Candy again. We bought that in 1972. We've moved uh, several billion dollars from the candy business to uh, other types of businesses. And uh, we'd love it if we could use it all in the candy business, but it just isn't that sort of business. And in in addition to that, we free up our managers from all dealing with Wall Street, dealing with bankers, dealing with all kinds of things that are what I regard as less productive use of their time. However, you also have a situation where you have 
gotten some activists who have been interested in the stock, including Bill Ackman. Um, he's built up a stake, hasn't said too much about it, but I think he has made some comments about how maybe Burlington, Northern Santa Fe's margins could be improved. You can look back at Bill Ackman's experience with the Canadian Pacific Railway and kind of wonder if he is building up a position because he would like to see you take a more active role there. Well, we, we notice what other railroads earn and when their margins are better. I mean, and uh, we, we certainly put way less pressure on than Wall Street might, who would want it next week. Or, but uh, we, uh, our managers are well aware of what's going on in other industries, and, and we've made changes where we don't think some businesses are performing as well as they should. But overwhelmingly, we've got managers there that are very, very good. They've got capital available to them for anything that makes sense. And we decide how much they distribute, uh, where the capital moves, and sometimes it moves from one industry to another. And in certain industries, uh, a consolidated tax position really is very helpful to us. There's a viewer question that came in from Ben Comston. And he asks, uh, it was recently pointed out by Bill Ackman that some subsidiaries like GEICO, BNSF, lag their peers in some areas. Would you agree with that? And how can your successor push improvement in subsidiaries while maintaining a decentralized management structure? Well, at GEICO, we bought control in 1995. Uh, we had about 2.5% of the market for auto insurance. And we're at about 13.7% of the market. So we've gone from... Two and a half billion of premium volume, or thereabouts, to 35 billion of premium volume. Uh, we're number two now to State Farm. We were number six or seven at that time. So I would say that not due to Berkshire at all, but due to Tony Nicely uh, during almost all those years, uh, Geico has been the envy of every other company in the uh, auto insurance business, except for Progressive, but they've done a good job too. <laughs> But I, I, Geico uh, is worth tens and tens and tens of billions more than when we bought it, in addition to all the earnings we've given, just the goodwill value. So it, uh, uh, that's been extraordinarily well run. And with Burlington, we, I think we paid a dividend of $5 billion last year, and we paid $35 billion for it. So it, it, uh, uh, it's gained in market share. Uh, and its business. Its operating margins have improved, but they haven't improved as much as some other railroads. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Berkshire Hathaway. There has been this question raised, uh, not only by Barron's in the cover story there, but by other places too, uh, about whether Berkshire Hathaway would be worth more if it were split up. That's that's a good question, and I will tell you that, that if you were to say, and let's say the stock market didn't change for two years and interest rates didn't change. So you had a two-year period and you said, we'll sell off all the businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't think, I mean, you have the expenses of selling them. Now, if you sold them all to people who leveraged them up to their maximum, you might get a little more than the stock is selling for. It would be very tax inefficient, very tax inefficient. Interestingly enough, up till 1986, it wouldn't have been. I mean, there was a general utilities doctrine that governed uh, corporate breakups. And uh, so you could dispose of businesses or securities, if you did it right, you could dispose of securities 
or businesses that had appreciated without a tax at the corporate level. That was done regularly in various ways up till 1986. They revised the tax code big time. They killed general utilities. You can't do that now. Now, you can go, you can have spinoffs, this business or that business. You probably have to lie a little in terms of your purpose in order to get the best tax ruling. Uh, And it takes time. But you cannot break up, you cannot dispose of the entire business, uh, business by business, without having very substantial tax liability. It would not produce a gain. On the other hand, having them together produces... There, there's some very valuable synergies in there. Now, we don't use leverage as much as the people who would buy them piece by piece would do. So we could leverage Berkshire up to the sky. I've promised people we won't because we have insurance promises to people out 50 or 100 years, and we've got shareholders who are going to own the stock for 50 years, and they do not want us to, uh, to leverage to the sky. But uh, there would not be a profit if... Uh, if we were simply to announce that over the next 24 months that you could come in and buy any business we had and we'd sell them to the highest bidder. You made a point of talking about this in the annual letter. Yeah. Uh, you said, key to, my only Berkshire, or key to my Berkshire-only institutions is my faith in the future judgment and fidelity of Berkshire directors. They will regularly be tested by Wall Streeters bearing fees. At many companies, these super salesmen might win. I do not, however, expect this to happen. That's exactly true. And and I think by writing it, it helps it a little, too. (laughs) Uh, No, there's no question that that Wall Street would love to come along and sell anything that we've got. I mean, you know, there's a fee every time that there's a transaction, and and they're big fees, and and there's fees for financing. I mean, so we've had all kinds of of people snoop around that. they know they're not getting it done with me, but they're not, they won't, it won't get done later on either. I, I am leaving every, every share of Berkshire I have goes to charity, and it's 99% of my net worth. So I got nobody cares more than I do about getting the most money to those philanthropies over the, over the years following my deaths. And that's going to take place over 15 years, and I say keep it all in Berkshire. But if I thought that it was going to be run... Uh, in a way responsive to, to Wall Street, I would, I would instead do something else and, and, and have, the, have the money distributed to these philanthropies and not have it all tied to Berkshire. But Berkshire has a very unusual shareholder base. I mean, we have individuals that own Berkshire, and a lot of them have owned it 50 years just like it, it's People buy it to own for, for a lifetime, and, and uh, uh, we're going to run it in a way that they won't be disappointed do you think the people who are newer, relatively newer shareholders buying the B shares have the same mentality as the people who have been in it for 50 years in the A? Well, we try to because that's who we encourage. I mean, in effect, we don't want everybody to buy our stock. I mean, there's only so many seats. There's about a million six hundred and some thousand A shares out. All the seats are filled. I love the shareholders we have. I don't want to go to Wall Street and try and get some new shareholders. They're going to replace the people we have. So, uh, what we want to have is people in those seats that are in sync with us. You can run a French restaurant or you can run a, a hamburger stand. And if you serve good hamburgers, you'll do good business at the hamburger stand. You can, at the at French restaurant, you can do the same thing there. But you can't run the French restaurant and then serve hamburgers inside. And you can't run the hamburger stand and serve French food inside. So we advertise in our deeds, in our words, in every way we can what we're about. And we're looking to have the seats filled at our church by people who are in sync with us. And we do have them there. We get the same people every Sunday. And 
I see no advantage in going out and telling everybody in Wall Street we're going to do wonderful things and having those seats replaced. Because the only way you can get a seat is to throw somebody else out of that seat. There's only so many seats and they're all full. And you want them filled with people who are in sync with the, with the policies of the company. And therefore, you have to explain those policies and you have to live up to those policies. And for 55 years, we've tried to. So you get the shareholders you deserve. Exactly. All right, not to mix metaphors, but can you have a decentralized central office running both the French restaurant and the hamburger place? Well, they aren't trying. We're not trying to have the railroad management run uh, the utility here. No, they were decentralized. That's what I mean. A decentralized headquarters that's in charge, a conglomerate in charge of all those different businesses. Well, you, we could run. Well, we have decentralized management as it is. Uh, we could have somebody in charge of all the little companies. Another one, the big. I mean, we could divisionalize it in all kinds of ways. Uh, uh, I think we'd have more overhead. I think we'd have a different sort of manager. Our managers like running their own businesses, and they they like they never have to finance their businesses. I mean, you know, we they never have to go to Wall Street. They never they probably save twenty five percent of their time, and uh, uh, and I want them to feel they own their businesses, and that's all they're responsible for. If we mess up some other way, you know, they still they get paid based on how they do, and and. Uh, uh, there again, we attract managers who like to operate on that basis. We don't attract managers, particularly, who, who think they're going to keep moving step by step through various divisions and eventually run the whole place. All right, let, let's jump to Berkshire's overall record versus yeah. the S&P. Berkshire has now underperformed the S&P 500 on one-year, three-year, five-year, and 10-year marks. Yeah. Is that because it's too big, and will it ever be able to outperform the Well, S&P? certainly being too big is part of it. Uh, and, uh, but I would say this. Uh, during that same time, I mean, last year we achieved, now I don't like it, gap earnings very well, but we achieved the highest gap earnings of any company in the world has ever achieved uh, that's investor-owned. And we have the highest net worth of any company in the world investor-owned, any company in the world. So it, I would say related to safety of principle over time, uh, I, I feel good about it, and I feel good about the fact that 99% of my money's in it and that it will be the source of all the philanthropic contributions that are made for 15 or dozen years after I die. So, uh, But I don't think, I do not think it will be in the top 10% of stocks performing over the next 10 years. I don't think it will be in the top 15% of stocks performing in the next 10 or 15 years. I also don't think it will be in the bottom 10% or 20% or 30%. So, But... Our ability to have a huge edge over the market generally with a $550 billion market value, it's just, it'll be minor, but it'll be done in a very, very safe manner. Is an investment in the S&P 500 a better investment? It than could be. It could be. Uh, uh, you know, on balance, I think we'll do a little better, but it'll be... It'll be minor. It depends on the kind of market we're in. If we're in a down market, we're, we're going to beat it. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, and sometimes we will be. The last 10 years, we haven't been. Uh, but uh, over 55 years, it's worked. And, and it, it will continue working. But it, it will not work at all like it did when we were working with $100 million or a $1 billion. There's no question about that. But we've got good businesses. And we're we won't be in the bottom quartile, I promise you that, <laughs> over any long period of time. There are people 
like there were back in 1999 who have said, maybe you've lost your edge. It was a similar thing at the, in 1999 where you saw the technology stocks that were the big high flyers that uh, people were pouring their money into, the dot-com companies and a lot of others associated with that. If you look at the markets again, it's the technology companies that have the big runs. This time you're participating in, in Apple, which is one of those front runners. But is this a cyclical thing to you? You think there'll be another market downturn and then Berkshire Oh, there'll be a downturn sometime. And, be a big... and then Bar- Berkshire outperforms at that point? or Oh, we'll outperform in a down market, but but that may not be particularly satisfactory to, to people. But, no, we will because we have these businesses that are making money. And, that, I mean, we are, we are not, we're geared somewhat away from a full market participation on, in either direction. Uh, but that's fine. We own, if you think about it, we're 80-some percent in equities. Uh, we may so show 230 or 40 billion in equities, and that looks like we're against our market cap. We're 40 percent, but we own 100 percent of these other businesses. Those are equities, too. I mean, we own a railroad, and we own insurance companies, and those are, those are equities. So we're about 80 percent in roughly in equities and about 20 percent in cash, and I'd rather, I'd rather have that 20 percent in other good businesses, but... but uh, uh, that is to some extent a curse of size, and it's to some extent the fact that that uh, it's very hard. If interest rates stay at this level, we'll wish we'd, for the next 10 or 20 years, we'll wish we'd been 125% in equities. I mean, it, it, you know, equities are so much cheaper than bonds, long bonds, that, uh, you know, some, something will change in a major way. I just don't know what. <laughs> And I want to be prepared for anything, obviously. So that's why you keep so much cash around. You want to be able to be prepared for a downturn. You want to be prepared for a, we, a crisis. We want to be prepared for anything, Becky. We want to be prepared for pandemics. We want to be pre- prepared for uh, anything comes along. Yeah, that is the chief job I have. I have people's money that gave it to me 50 or 60 years ago, and some of them still have 100% of their money or essentially in it. And, and the one thing... And I've got the responsibility for five foundations that presently are going to get $80 billion and I think we'll get a lot more over time, probably. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to permanently lose money. And, and uh, uh, you don't want to get that so that you go into a shell and don't do anything. But we have obligations to people on workers' compensation claims and auto accidents they've had that go out 50 years. And... You know, we have to run the place so that every check clears under any circumstances. And that's why, incidentally, we own treasury bills. We don't, we don't own commercial paper. We don't rely on bank lines or anything. Uh, when people get terrified, and they will occasionally, everything freezes. I mean, you know, and, and you're going to have to stand on your own feet at a time like that. It won't happen very often, but it'll happen occasionally. I know you've developed a thick skin over the years, but does it tick you off when people start questioning whether you've lost it, whether you can still... Well, I, I'm sure I've lost some of it. I'm mean, tell you all kinds of things I've lost. No, that, that happens. But uh, uh, we haven't lost Geico or the railroads. We, we, Berkshire, without me, is worth essentially the same as Berkshire with me. I mean, I, my, my value added is, is not high, but... I don't think I'm subtracting value, <laughs> but uh, the big thing is how our businesses do and what, what 
what we get to add in the way of businesses over time. And we can add them through marketable securities. I mean, we own five and a half or a little over percent of Apple. It's probably the best business I know in the world. And we own five and a half percent of it. And that is a bigger commitment that we have in anything except insurance and the railroad. So it's it's our third largest business. Yeah, it made the point that it was bigger than your biggest acquisition, Precision Casper. Oh, sure. No, it's our third largest business. All right, let me test you on your thick skin. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Here was the kicker of that Barron's cover story. He said, there's reasons to think that the company will be a market beater when he's gone. In the meantime, happy 90th. Yeah, well, that's, I, I hope it is a market beater when I'm gone. <laughs> I'm counting on it. I, I'm telling my estate and then the trustees that succeed my executors in the estate, I'm telling them to keep every share of Berkshire they have until they have this pattern of giving it away. I mean, the... I want them to look back and say, gee, we should have made this change earlier <laughs> because it's going to determine you know, how much we buy in the way of vaccines and, you know, and, and all kinds of things, education and all these things. And I feel terrific about Berkshire after I leave. <laughs> Next, Warren Buffett on the 2020 Democratic race. Wow, that's the first time I've ever heard you say something like that. And new phone, who dis? When did you get the smartphone? You're looking at an 89-year-old guy that's barely beginning to be with it. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Warren, I want to talk about another issue that we have not touched on yet, and that's politics here in the United States. Uh, we just watched the Nevada caucus. Bernie Sanders walked away with the most delegates after that. He looks to be as the clear front runner for the nomination for the Democrats this time around. You have long been a supporter of the Democratic Party. What do you think? Well, I think I'm going to wait <laughs> and uh, uh, see who gets the nomination. But uh, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not a card-carrying Democrat. And... and, and uh, I've, I've voted for Republicans. I've contributed to Republicans. Uh, in fact, I, I, I've only run for two offices in my life. One was head of the uh, Young Republicans at the University of Pennsylvania, and the other time I was actually on the ballot running for a delegate to the Republican National Convention in 1960. But normally I vote for Democrats, and uh, we will see what happens. Wow, that's the first time I've ever heard you say something like that. Well, it's, I've kept it a secret for all these years, but now it comes out. <laughs> you just said that you're not a card-carrying Democrat. That's true. You are a card-carrying capitalist. You Absolutely. actually have one of those in your wallet. Yeah. I've seen it. I don't know whether 
I'm a card-carrying capitalist, right? I don't think that's consistent with, inconsistent with what I've said on politics. Yeah, here it is. I think we will have some of those available at the annual meeting, too, for our shareholders. This is a good time to remind podcast listeners that one year ago at the 2019 Ask Warren on Squawk Box, Buffett indicated he might support Mike Bloomberg for president. That was long before the former New York City mayor and fellow billionaire entered the race. If Mike Bloomberg announced tomorrow that he was the candidate, I would say I'm poor. And uh, I think he'd be a, a very good president. So does Buffett feel the same today? Well, I would, uh, it, it, I would, certainly, I would certainly vote for him. I don't think another billionaire supporting him would be the, <laughs> the best thing to announce. <laughs> but uh, sure, I would, I, uh, I, I, I would have no trouble voting for Mike Bloomberg. I would say this in terms of Sanders. I actually agree with him in terms of certain things he would like to accomplish. I don't agree with him in many ways, but I, in, in terms of the fact that that uh, we ought to do better by the people that get left behind by our capitalist system, I don't think we should kill the capitalist system in the process. I think we should make sure that the golden goose keeps laying more eggs, and it's worked wonderfully since 1776. But it doesn't work as well for people whose talents aren't, aren't really geared to a market economy, and I don't think anybody should be left behind by an economy that has over $60,000 of GDP per capita. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of increasing the earned income tax credit. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think there should be some changes made. But, but uh, uh, if given a choice, I would I'd certainly vote for Mike Bloomberg as opposed to Sanders. Uh, there is a, a plan. Let's talk about some of Sanders' plans. You said you agree with some of what his intentions are, but let's talk about some of those actual plans. One of those plans would be to give 20 percent of company stock to employees and put workers on the board. Uh, what do you think about that? That would be for any company, public company, that has more than $100 million in annual revenue or a $100 million balance sheet. Well, I don't want to get involved in evaluating his whole plan, but I think that would be a particularly bad idea. Because? Well, I just, I, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think putting 20% of the capitalists on a labor union support is a good idea either. And I, 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 uh, I think the market system works very, very well in terms of developing more goods and services. I mean, when you flew out here to Omaha, if you'd flown out here and you wouldn't have been able to fly in 1776, you wouldn't have seen anything. Everything you see is the product of a, a system that's worked like nothing's ever worked in the history of the world. So I, I do not believe in messing up our system of developing output. I do believe that that anybody's willing to work 40 hours a week and has a couple kids should not have to have an extra second job. And I believe in having a higher income for people, not necessarily a higher minimum wage, but I, I, I do not think it's at all unreasonable that the income tax credit produces at least $15 an hour, maybe higher in certain areas. That, uh, uh, so I, I'm in very much in sympathy with the fact that that, that Senator Sanders believes that a lot of people are getting left behind and through no fault of their own. And there's all kinds of aspects of capitalism that can need in some ways to be uh, regulated. But I don't believe in giving up the capitalistic system. Let's talk about shares of Apple uh, with it being such a huge holding of yours. You've got more than 5.3 percent of the company right now. Right? Yeah, I think it's five, six. But 5.6 percent of the company. And it goes up every day. 
Let's talk about not what we've seen with the slowdown with the coronavirus, because Apple is one of the companies that has said it's going to have an impact, not only sure. with the stores that they've closed there, with the behavior of you know, Chinese customers, but also what happens with the supply chain. Supply chain, sure. What, how do you read through any of that? What are, what are you hearing? Do you know more than we do on that no, front? No, no. I don't know one thing more. I, 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 see, I may see Tim Cook at the annual meeting. I see him in Sun Valley once a year. No, I, I, I don't think... I don't think I've placed a phone call to Tim Cook in two or three years. Or I mean, it, it, no, I, it, all kinds of things are going to happen to Apple in the next 10 years. The real question is, is, you know, what is the degree of pervasiveness and strength of that product five or 10 years from now? And I don't think of Apple as a stock. I think it's our third largest business. It's also a high-flying technology company. It's one that's been at the forefront, but you've said in the past you didn't buy it because it's a technology company. Uh, I think it's a consumer product. In fact, I think I said this on the program a couple of years ago. I mean, it is, obviously, it's a consumer product company that uses technology, but we've got a lot of products that use technology at, at, at Berkshire. But uh, it's an incredible company, <laughs> and, and uh, I should have appreciated it earlier. There's a question that came in from... I guess the handle is GPG. Um, this is a question that came in on Twitter, and the writer asks, you've said that you can do fair value estimates of companies you follow at any time in your head. So please do one now for Apple. What went wrong with your estimate for IBM, and how is that, a mis- how is that miscalculation different than for Apple? Uh, IBM's an entirely different business than Apple. I mean, uh, I, Apple doesn't resemble... IBM anymore. It resembles, it resembles C's candy in a way more. I mean, it is a incredibly useful product of people that grows more useful as the number of people uh, are involved. I mean, it's, it's really interesting, you know, we call them smartphones. If you go back and look at the old telephone, that was an incredible useful product. It changed my mother's life and my dad's life. It changed lives in every way, and they... They uh, took a long time to become pervasive, and it was very expensive initially, but it, it, it changed the world. And the smartphone uh, is part of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people's lives in all aspects of their lives. They, it's used for as all kinds of utility. It's a consumer product. Are you a consumer of its products at this point? You've had a flip uh, phone for forever. Ah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, I am now using, not very often, but I'm, I'm using the latest model. And, and uh, uh, I'll give you a little preview of our, our uh, movie for the annual meeting. We haven't done it yet, but it will probably show me crushing with my foot, my, my old flip phone, while, while cozing up to the, the new smartphone. When did you get the smartphone? Uh, I've been given several of them, but... Uh, uh, including by Tim Cook. <laughs> One finally stuck? You're actually- uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, my flip phone is permanently gone. The number's been changed to my <laughs> new phone. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. I, I mean, you're looking at a, an 89-year-old guy that's barely beginning to be with it. <laughs> Warren, I want to thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it, uh, your generosity with your time, and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Come every year. <laughs> thank you. 
That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. On our rundown tomorrow, we continue to ask Warren, the Berkshire Hathaway chairman and CEO on succession plans, his longtime partnership with 96-year-old Vice Chair Charlie Munger. If Charlie Munger did a podcast, I'd probably run it five times, yeah. And with the markets, Buffett says it's all about timing. You should always adapt your consumption to your income. You shouldn't try and adjust your income to your consumption. That's a basic principle for individuals, businesses, and everything else. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern on CNBC. Our podcast is a hybrid. The best stories, debate, and analysis from our three-hour TV show right into your ears. You can subscribe to Squawk Pod for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Thoughts, comments, want to say hi? Tweet us at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. I don't even know what time it is. Oh. I have no idea. <laughs> this podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.